I'm going to try to talk a bit about the, the concept of, of failed states, and I'm going to try to, to problematize this concept. It's a concept we often hear in, in both policy discourse and the media, which is thrown around very, very easily and very lightly. And I'm going to try to explain, first of all, you know, where, where does this concept come from? And then once we understand a bit of the, of the origins of, of, of the concept, trying to say a bit about why, why this could be problematic in today's I'm going to try to show that based on, on a very brief uh, case study, the case study of Somalia. Somalia is the archetype in many people's eyes of a so-called failed state or collapsed state, and how, how this fits in with, with the broader paradigm, the broader worldview of, of, of the global war on terror. Now, first of all, what are failed states? Now, there are all kinds of definitions which circulate both in political science and in other, in other fields, but what it's basically getting at, this, this term, is that states are not seeing and are not doing what they, what they should essentially be doing. And that, that mainly refers to, to issues of, of security and, and territorial integrity in most people's minds. It refers to issues of public services like access to, to healthcare, to education, to water. And increasingly, it also refers uh, to a political dimension, which has to do with issues of, 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 of corruption, of, of lacking accountability. Now, if I give you some of the, the, the classic cases, I mean, it becomes more clear what most people are, are referring to. And intuitively, this seems to make sense to a lot of people. These are, these are countries where life overall is, is not particularly good uh, for most people, where one catastrophe seems to follow just another catastrophe that happened um, last month. And so overall, in, in the public imaginary, uh, these failed states are typically associated with, with concepts of, of instability, of unpredictability, uh, of violence. And, and typically, they're described in terms of vacuums, because there is, the state is not where it, where it should be, or if it is in a, in a certain place, that it, it's doing uh, the wrong thing. And essentially, um, we have been creating a, a discourse which, which very much sees these failed states, not just as the worst performers, but increasingly as one of the biggest problems in today's world. They're not just a problem for their own population, but increasingly there's a wider problem uh, which affects populations in other countries too. Now, what is important to understand is when exactly did this term came, came into being, at what kind of, of moment in, in history, it actually arises right after the end of, of the Cold War, as the moment that's been called by some people, the end of history. And what's important is that there are two main ideological influences that have been combined in a, in a kind of orthodox understanding of what failed states are. The first is the idea of a new world order as put forward by President Bush Sr. The idea that once the Cold War was over, we can finally get on with the real problems. We can start, finally start dealing with issues of development, of human security, of peace in the third world, where we no longer need to fight any proxy wars between the Soviet Union and the Americans, but we can, we can finally focus on, on the real issues. So it's, it's an optimistic idea recognizing that there are problems in the global south, but we can do something about them. The second idea is from an American journalist called Robert Kaplan, who's written a couple of books and, and articles that have been very exemplary for a far more pessimistic way of looking at the world. And he describes it as the coming anarchy. He describes several states, particularly in Africa and West Africa, where increasingly instability and insecurity is the norm. And he describes a very complex interlocking of issues of population growth, ecological damage, socioeconomic dislocation, corruption, political violence, collapsing dictatorships, all combining to create this very dangerous nexus of disease, of violence, and poverty, which is spreading. And the idea is basically that we need to contain this and try to limit it to the countries where this is actually happening. And so he's already saying that Africa is, is almost unbounded. 
it's, it's already failed and we can, we can hardly do a thing about it. Uh, but what's important for Europe and, and for America is, is to try to, to contain these problems to these areas. So we have two very, very, very different views. But what, what's important is that they are fused in today's understanding of, of what failed state stars. And this is what I call the so-called orthodox narrative, the, classic, the classical understanding of, of what they are. And the classical understanding of what they are, failed states are actually called a series of dangerous transition problems of individual countries. I.e., this is not a problem, there's no problem with the international system or with the world economy. It's a problem with these individual states, essentially, as they are trying to transition to the end of history, to the idea that liberal democracy and uh, market capitalism have eventually, at the end of the Cold War, have won. And so the violence that we see there, the deprivation that is described in these narratives, is actually temporary. If only these countries would take on certain of the prescriptions we have, they wouldn't necessarily be facing those very problems. So what's very important is that the crises are very heavy, but they're essentially internal. And so the solutions essentially are also domestic. As I said, they're essentially about coming to terms with the victory of end of history, the victory of market uh, democracy, and unlocking its, its virtuous effects. Now, initially, at the same time, what was happening in real political terms, what was happening in the real world, as well as and these ideas that were circulating, is that originally most people were concerned with field states from a humanitarian perspective. The idea that this would create huge refugee flows, refugees carrying weapons, but also disease, poverty, and bring this to other countries, and increasingly we had to do something about it. The concern was essentially humanitarian. Now, while this was happening, of course, at the end of the Cold War, America was left as the, as the lone superpower. It was what we call international relations, America's unipolar moment. And the rise of the failed states concept coincides with that unique moment in time where America has the capacity and seemingly also the will to do something about problems in the global south. And moreover, it also coincides with the spread of ideas about humanitarian interventions. We shouldn't just care about human rights in, our, in the West or in our countries, we should also care about other human beings because they are essentially human. These values are not Western, they are shared by everybody, so we have a duty to go and help. This is the, the rhetoric, the, the ideology. Now, up to a large extent, September 11, 2001 changes a lot of these more humanitarian and idealistic uh, understandings. What's very important is that after 9-11, a lot of political scientists and people in the Pentagon go and re-examine the Afghani case. Afghanistan, which was called a failed state, was essentially re-examined, and, and what people saw was, was basically the following. He said, after the war between the Soviets and the Mujahideen, the international community basically disengaged from Afghanistan. It left the Afghanis to, to their own, own device, and they, they left them to, to sort out that mess. And that wasn't exactly the right choice. Because for many years, we had civil war, we had instability, we had a flourishing of the, of the opium production. We had a vacuum. As, as, as we've called it before. And this vacuum was actually filled by, by negative elements, negative forces which were perpetuating anarchy and instability until there was a movement that came along with a radically religious message which uh, tried to unite this country and which then invited in some foreign terrorists. And what we see is that this example of Afghanistan, this very monodimensional analysis of what happened in Afghanistan, which I hope sounds familiar to all of you, um, was essentially exported to all kinds of other cases. And we see kind of emergence of an implicit magical formula. The idea that all failed states, quote unquote, equal basically vacuums, i.e. there is no functioning state. And in these vacuums actually to anarchy and instability. And in turn, instability and anarchy 
lead to people who want to benefit from that. Criminal elements, think for example in the case of Afghanistan of drugs, in the case of Sierra Leone violence and illegal trade with that. And that very quickly this also becomes connected to religious fanatics who aim to make good use of this, this vacuum and to capitalize on who then in turn invite terrorists and this radicalizes the, the population. So that, that's, that's very much the, the idea. Now, increasingly, this idea that failed states are connected to insecurity and more broadly to terror has become a fundamental part of the logic in the global war on terror. And this is very much to do with, as I said, the neoconservative understanding of what happens in Afghanistan and some of their main ideas about, about what went wrong. And in the idea of a lot of neoconservative intellectuals, essentially what went wrong is that the Americans, despite their faults, despite their unipolar moment, disengaged from large parts of the world. And by disengaging, we basically means we were very passive towards these so-called black holes, which were sucking in negative energy and exporting instability to other places. And in the neoconservative understanding, there are two solutions to this, to this kind of, of problem of state failure. The first is, in the short term, confrontation. The idea that through force, you can actually transform international relations. In the neoconservative imaginary, force is not a negative thing. Force can actually serve to flatten the playing field, if you like, to create a tabula rasa for which you can rebuild. We need to clear the rubble, and then we can put in place the seeds where liberal democracy and market economics can grow. So it's a combination of military power to transform in the short term, and in the long term, we have this universal recipe, the recipe that at the end of the day has won the Cold War, market economics, and a, a very specific kind of, of liberal democracy, which is described as apolitical. It's the neutral term. It's what's won. It's what everybody should agree on. It's universal. So we don't need any critical discussion of what democracy is or what capitalism is, because history has proven us right. History ended in 1989. Now, this also explains, of course, some of the, the controversial choices, uh, which I can't really go into right now. but. Before we go to Somalia, I'll, I'll end with this quote on this section. Quote by, by Jack Straw in, in September 2002, back then the, the Secretary for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, who very much summed up a lot of these issues I've been talking about. The idea of failed states is dangerous, not just for the people in the failed states, but increasingly around them. But Jack Straw speaks of a future in, in, in case we don't do anything, in case we're dangerously passive again. And he says, it's a future in which unspeakable acts of evil are committed against us coordinated from failed states in distant parts of the world. Places like Somalia, Liberia, and Congo invoke the Hobbesian image of a state of nature where life is nasty, brutal, and short, as he says, without order, where continual fear and danger of violent death render life nasty, brutal, and so short. As well as bringing mass murder to the heart of Manhattan, state failure has brought terror and misery to large swathes of the African continent. And at home, and this is, this is, the, this is the really interesting connection, it has brought drugs, violence, and crime to Britain's streets. Right, and once again, it's not just a problem for Africa itself, it's a problem for us. It is a shift here in where the security issue lies. And we need to remind ourselves that turning a blind eye to the breakdown of order in any part of the world, however distant, invites direct threats to our national security and well-being. In other words, we can't stay passive, we have to get actively engaged with these other parts of the world. And what that means, as I've tried to say, is a very particular kind of engagement on the terms of the people who cast failed states as being a problem. This is Somalia, a country, of course, as, as most of you know, in, in, in the Horn of Africa, a country which since 1991 has lacked a functioning central government and which is typically described in, in, in the classic journalistic understanding as the archetype of the failed state, as a kind of Mad Max situation in which 
Uh, there's famine, there's hunger, there's fighting everywhere. Uh, there was total and permanent disorder and, and, and chaos. And uh, it's a wonder at all that there are still any people in Somalia left if you sometimes read some of the, the, the journalistic accounts. Now, in order to understand my argument, it's important to, to give you a very, very brief history of, of Somalia's, uh, a very brief uh, summary of Somalia's history. Now, Somalia was created in, in 1960, um, and, and basically the, the Somali territory was, was composed of, of various regions that were under the control of, of different colonial powers. But what's important is that an important section of the Somali population, of the Somali nation, was left outside the country of Somalia. There were some Somalis in, in what is today Djibouti, in Ethiopia, but also in northern, in northern Kenya. And what's important for our story here today is that when, in 1969, a man called Siad Bar takes control of the Somali state and installs a military regime, very quickly the legitimacy of, re of his regime will depend on this project to unite all the Somalis inside Somalia, okay, to bring these populations, which are in other countries, into his country. In 1977-1978, he goes to war with Ethiopia over the, the Ogaden region, the Ogaden region, which is the eastern part of, of Ethiopia, where, as I said, a lot of Somalis live and have a lot of aspirations to become a part of Somalia. And in this war, there's not just the massive investment of, of manpower of uh, Somali troops who support Somali insurgents in Ethiopia, but there's also a spectacular amount of money that goes in there, and as I said, political capital. The legitimacy of the regime increasingly comes to depend on the success of this war. It becomes really, if you like, a test on which to, to give a grade to this, to this regime. Um, what happens is that Somalia loses this war in 1977-1978. And basically the, the Bar regime after that is left with a huge debt and increasingly becomes increasingly unpopular. And by 1991, the regime just controls this narrow stretch of land around the capital of Mogadishu, most of the rest of the territory is taken up by, by militias, by various rebel groups. We see um, famine in, in different parts of Somalia. Uh, there's a total loss of societal control. And in 1991, the government basically evaporates. Bar is overthrown in a series of very dubious effects, which we're trying to understand to this day how exactly it was that, that he had to depart. But there was essentially no one to, to replace him, and there was no new governments with ministers and administration put in place. And this is essentially one of, one of the big problems. And this is where, where the story starts. In the, in the imaginary of, of the Western world, here's where history ended. Between 1991 and today, uh, basically most, most journalists and analysts see this as, as I said, a kind of continuous situation of Mad Max anarchy, in which people drive around in vehicles and shoot each other, and you have roadblocks and famine, and now and then you have a Western intervention, which is trying to dole out some food, but not very successful. They go black hole down and this kind of of chaotic situations, but that's that's essentially just of what we're what we're getting. Um, now, with the war on terror, of course, as I was trying to say, what was essentially a humanitarian concern slowly but surely becomes a security concern. You see people asking yourself questions. It's been very unstable there for a long time, and with a lot of time for negative forces to seep into the country, perhaps we might see the emergence one day of, of radicals, and perhaps Osama bin Laden might go there once he's dislocated from from Afghanistan. And so increasingly, you begin to see the first signs of seeing Somalia as a problem, a problem to world security. Even though, to our knowledge, there are very few Somalis who've ever been involved in any way in any so-called terrorist acts against, against the West. Uh, let alone that they would actually be, be situated inside Somalia, this, this being a sign. Now, 
What does happen on the ground in the meanwhile is that in early 2006, there is a coalition of local Sharia courts, local courts that practice Islamic law, which are organized by districts, merged for the very first time in history. These, these courts have existed for a long time and have actually enabled a lot of people to get basic state functions like justice, even though they've been lacking a central state. And these courts have been working in the neighborhoods for basically since 1993-1994 and making a real difference in terms of everyday lives of people and making sure that Whenever you leave your house, you're not going to get shot. And so these courts begin to unite in early 2006 to push out a lot of the warlords that have genuinely been, been hated in Somalia. These warlords control most of, of southern Somalia, in which they set up, typically set up roadblocks where they, where they um, ask the money of, of, of people passing through. And these, these courts organize themselves, take on some militia, and push these people out of, of Mogadishu. Now, very quickly, they become, they become quite ambitious, and they promise to reunite Somalia under the banner of Islam with a promise of order, unity, and justice. And very quickly, their, their recipe basically revolves around a very conservative interpretation overall of, of Islamic law, but not necessarily very radical. The, the extension of social services, including the reopening of schools, especially, actually, it should be said, for girls, it also includes the cleaning up of, for example, of, of the streets, reopening of certain hospitals, Mogadishu Harbour, for the first time in many years, uh, it, it's open for business and everybody who wants to come can, can come. And they provide a lot of, a lot of security and, and, and they dismantle the, these roadblocks. So in many, in many ways, they provide what most people are asking for. The typical demands of most people are things like food, peace, and justice. These Islamic courts, whatever their faults might be, they are, they are essentially providing them. And it's possible for them to do so because they're actually a very pragmatic organization, not just made up of some, some clerics, but actually it's a combination of, of, of local chefs as well as opportunistic businessmen, as of young people who've never really found a purpose in life. And they unite to, to bring a common purpose to Somalia. Now, unfortunately, this experiment, this social experiment, this grassroots uh, answer to some of the demands that the Somali population had, was not allowed to last. There was a huge problem for, for Ethiopia, now, which would take me take me a long time to do fully justice to the Ethiopian position. But basically, the government in Addis Ababa decided that this was a dangerous trend. And it mainly has to do with the fact that the Prime Minister of Ethiopia was under a lot of pressure at that time internally. And he had had elections for which he had been very heavily criticized, in which a lot of opponents had been killed. And there were growing questions about his, about his alliance with the West. And he was very clever, and he tapped into this growing feeling in the West that failed states equal terrorism. And so from the very beginning, he began casting these un this Union of Islamic Courts as a bunch of fanatics, as a bunch of Al-Qaeda people, saying that there were Al-Qaeda terrorists in this country, that this bore eerie resemblances to the Taliban. Remember the Taliban, you have a country torn apart by civil war, in which there's famine and there's chaos, and then suddenly you have this radical religious movement bringing order, peace, and justice. And he said, we've seen this before. We've seen this before. Are you going to let this happen in Somalia? And a lot of American people said, well, maybe, yeah, we've seen this before. And so, increasingly, you saw that the international reaction to the Union of Islamic Courts was outright hostile, and increasingly became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Increasingly, people were saying, you know, these are radicals, we cannot sit down with them, we cannot talk with them. Of course, emboldening the very few people inside the courts who did have more radical ideas, once again, not necessarily Al-Qaeda, but a more conservative understanding, and, and certainly great skepticism of the West. And of course, emboldening these elements and, 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 and marginalizing those people who actually wanted to do business uh, with the Ethiopians and with other people too. Now all of this led to an invasion by the Ethiopians at the end of 2006, around Christmas time. 
supported by the Americans. The Americans did some of the airstrikes and provided a lot of the intelligence. And in a matter of two weeks, these Islamic courts, which had managed to liberate or occupy, depending on your definition, half of Somali territory, were pushed out and they evaporated. And very quickly, a new government was put into place. They said, we are going to rebuild the state. Remember, transformative, the transformative power of, um, of violence and then the liberal democratic elements which can, uh, which can pop up, just like in Iraq and Afghanistan. But very quickly, actually, you saw that this government was made up of most of the war goals, so the very people who had historically been, been hated by, by the Somali population. And of course, it was very much seen as a puppet in the hands of the Americans and the Ethiopians. And as I said, there was a very long rivalry between Ethiopians and Somalis, so there was no chance that this government was ever going to be seen as legitimate. And this is the context in which the current insurgency that we're seeing in Somalia was born. And this is also the context in which we've seen that the humanitarian conditions that so many people have long been predicting would be happening, as in, for example, famine, have returned to Somalia. Today we're experiencing the worst food crisis in 20 years in Somalia. Whilst we didn't have that in the conditions of so-called state collapse, but we're, we're seeing it now that officially we have a fragile democracy, as the Americans and the Ethiopians prefer to call it. So finally, what I want to say about that is that some concluding thoughts on, on, on the problem of this, this understanding of, of failed states and, and how it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Essentially what we're dealing with is, of course, very determinist logic. The idea that we have a magical formula which allows us to understand very complex processes in a whole set of, of states. The first question we might ask is, are failed states new? Is it really something which only comes into play after 1990? And of course, the question linked to that is, who decides when a state is failing and when it's succeeding? Who decides that Iraq or Afghanistan or Somalia is a fragile democracy battling against the extremists? Or the state's actually failing and is beyond rescue, unless we, we step in with some force. Secondly, there's, as I said, a complete neglect of any of the external force of failure. There is no discussion of how the world economy comes in here, IMF, World Bank, uh, great power politics, neighboring countries. All of that is out of the equation. The same with the criminal elements. For example, when it comes to the drug trade, no one actually focuses on demand. Everybody looks at supply. Why is that? Another question, of course, is that do all failed states follow similar trajectories? Do they all follow this logic that I've tried to say, vacuums equal instability, anarchy equal crime equal terrorism? Or perhaps if we have more complex processes with different causes, different consequences, and thus different outcomes. As I've also said, there's a huge problem with the actual empirical analysis. This, this broad brush that people give to failed states actually totally overlooks what, what's really going on. Failed states are not vacuums. We see that things are happening on the ground, that people are formulating answers. And that we can definitely not speak about a kind of tabula rasa in which all of what happens in a failed state is wrong. And we all need to sweep it aside and we'll have some nice liberal democracy if we put in place the right institutions. But what we see is that often people are giving local and pragmatic answers, which might not necessarily fit a classical understanding of what liberal democracy is or should be in our minds, but are perhaps closer to what local grievances are and local what, what local people want when one doesn't answer. And finally, of course, there's a huge war on terror component is does the entire process of failed states have not more to do with America's search for a post-Cold War identity, i.e. the search for a legitimacy for America to operate in a certain way and for the military-industrial complex to, to continue what essentially Donald Trump has been calling the long war, the idea that America can only be strong in the face of an enemy. And if we need a nameless enemy, then we'll create one, i.e. failed states. You set it up as a huge problem, as a reason to intervene, 
And this then justifies a whole range of policies, including inside, inside American politics, of course, the idea of a permanent Republican majority. And so all of that, of course, ends up being, being a self-fulfilling prophecy, as I said. As, and I'll conclude by this, as one guy in the Somali insurgency once said, if you call us Al-Qaeda and you keep on repeating that we are Al-Qaeda and you, you keep on shouting it through microphones and your, your newspapers and your television statements, and this means that basically we have no more support and we can't talk to anyone in the national community, well then I assume we are Al-Qaeda. Maybe these are the only people we can turn to for some support, for some story, for some understanding of our, of our narrative. And that's exactly, of course, the problem, that the global war on terror aims to reduce instability and terrorism, but often ends up compounding the very problems that it is supposed to resolve, the genuine problems that exist in some of these so-called states.